I think the year was 1980. We are coming up to our fifth wedding anniversary. I want to do something incredibly romantic for my wife because that's just my nature. Ha ha. And I decided I wanted to do something incredibly romantic for my wife. And so that day, uh, when Helen finished nursing at the Belleville Hospital, I picked her up at the front door. And as we came out of the driveway of the hospital, instead of turning right to go towards our house, I turned left. And Helen says, where are we going? And I said, hang with me. We've got something planned for us. And so she was kind of silent. We left and went up there and eventually got onto Highway 401 in Ontario and started heading up towards Toronto. And Helen says, where are we going? And I said, it's all right, honey. I've got something planned for you. Your suitcase is all packed in the back. I've got this. And so she's sitting there quietly and we're driving. We get up to Toronto. And when we get to Toronto, we turn left and turn down towards Hamilton area. And Helen says, where are we going? And I said, honey, it's okay. I've got something planned for us. Just, just relax. It's, everything's under control. And as we passed the, the city of Hamilton, Helen went something like this. She says, I know where we're going. And I said, where do you think we're going? She says, you're taking me back to Niagara Falls where we had our honeymoon. And I said, that's right. I said, I booked us back into the same hotel. I even tried to get us back into the same room again. I want us to go back and let's kind of relive everything that happened five years ago on our honeymoon. Let's go back and, and have some fun in Niagara Falls. So we get back to Niagara Falls and we get into the hotel room and, and we're, we're up the, the river from Niagara Falls. You can see it way off in the distance and it's pretty cool. I said, let's go, let's go have some fun. So we went down uh, to the thing called the Maid of the Mist Boat Ride. Anybody know what I'm talking about, the Maid of the Mist Boat Ride? It's a, river, it's a boat that goes up the gorge towards Niagara Falls. And when we got there, we were the first in line for this thing. And, and you pay your money, and they give you a really goofy-looking blue raincoat to put on. And when we got on board the, the, the ship, we're at the very front. I mean, we're right at the bow. I, I got hands on each side of the pointy thing that's there. And Helen's standing right beside me. And way off in the distance, there's Niagara Falls. There's the American Falls. And, and everything is cool. And all the rest of the people begin to get on board this boat and then the boat pulls out from, from the dock like this and then you get out into the gorge and you're heading towards Niagara Falls and it's so cool and I'm right at the front and we're going and there's the American Falls and it's, it's kind of pitiful but there's the Canadian Falls and, and, we're, going, and, and we're going towards this thing and, and all of a sudden you get closer and closer to the falls and this is what begins to happen. The boat begins to go like this. It goes, That's so cool. It goes, Whoosh, and we're getting closer, and the boats really begin to rock, and the, the spray's coming down, and the water's in your face, and the thunder, and whoosh, and, and it's going up and down, it's like a whoosh, like, it's so cool, and we're getting right up close, and the thunder, the water's just pouring down, 600,000 gallons per second, 170 feet up in the air, just, and the boats, and the boats crashing up and down, and all of a sudden, I found this, watch my mouth, I was doing this, and, and all of a sudden, I was really conscious that my mouth was open, and I was so embarrassed, and I looked over, and Helen's going, oh. <laughs> like that. And I looked up and down the railing, and everyone, oh. And everybody's got their mouth. And then all of a sudden, the boat begins to turn, and everybody's got to get cool again. And off we go back. That was so neat. And so, like, let's go do something else. So we went into Niagara Falls, and we went into the, like, the touristy area of Niagara Falls, and you got to walk up a little hill, and then you get up to where all like, the museums are, and we went to this museum and that museum, and eventually we came to the Guinness Book of World Records Museum. And we went in, and we're walking hand in hand through this place, and, and we're looking at the best of this, and the most expensive of that, and the rarest of this, and, and the most precious of that, and all of a sudden, out of no place comes this lady. 
And she says, uh, if anybody would like to see Sandy Allen's presentation, follow me. And I turned to Helen and says, who's Sandy Allen? She says, I don't know, but everybody else is going, let's go. Okay, so we dutifully follow along with this group of people and we come into this room and the room would be, the room would be about the size of the platform up here and by the time we got in, there's all these other people and there's no more seats. So we're at the very back of the auditorium and I'm leaning against the wall, have no clue what it is I'm about to experience and across that end of the auditorium, there's this curtain and all of a sudden the curtain opens and there's this lady that's sitting in this great big lazy boy chair. And she picks up her microphone and she begins to tell her story. And she says, hello everybody. She says, my name is, is Sandy Allen and I'd like to tell you a bit about my life. And so she begins telling us about her life. And she says, you know, I had a normal birth and, and I was growing up in this place and everything was fine. She says, but when I was in about grade five or six, I noticed that I was, I was taller than than any of my, my, my peers. And by the time I finished grade six, she said I was, I was taller than the teachers in the school. And by the time I got to high school, she says I was way taller than, than people around me. And she says, you just need to know, she says, I, I am now the, the world's tallest lady. And so she's telling us her story. And then she says, um, now I'm gonna stand up. And if you'd like to come and have your picture taken with me, uh, I'd like to invite you to come forward and you can have a photo taken with me. And I said, well, that'd be pretty cool, the world's tallest lady. So I'm at the very back. So I'm at the back of the row of the people that are, are going to go up and get their picture taken. And so I'm standing in line and Sandy, I'm like, she's way over there. And she's standing, I'm not a tall lady. Huh? And so I, I begin taking my steps forward in line, you know. I'm getting closer. And then watch what happens. And eventually I'm standing beside this lady who is seven foot seven inches tall. She's taller than Shaq and Ming and all the NBA players. She's seven foot seven. She weighs 450 pounds. She has a size 22 shoe, size 16 ring on her, on her finger. She can't fit in a normal size car. She has to have a car specially modified so she can get around. And I'm standing beside her and I'm feeling like I'm in like grade three. This, like, this huge, like, big woman, like, if she hits me, I'm not going to wake up. Oh. And then I moved away, and everything's cool again. Now, let me ask you a question, and just be honest for a second. Right now, do you have a sense of awe oh, for the majesty of Niagara Falls, or the oh, of how big and powerful and strong Sandy Allen is. And most of us in the room, I, I think if we were honest, we'd say, no, I don't, don't, it's not like that, but you know. But maybe if I had a chance to go on the Maiden Mist boat ride, I might do that. And maybe if I had a chance to meet the world's tallest person, I might do that, but that right now, do I have a sense of like that? I would say, no, you probably don't. Because you see, awe, can only be experienced when you're in the presence of something that is awe-inspiring. The word awe actually means what I'm doing with my mouth. It means to be open-mouthed. It means to be overwhelmed by the 
the bigness and the grandeur or the beauty or the majesty of something. <gasps> Your mouth is open. You've got nothing to say. It's like, wow, I am so impressed. And the scripture says, so let us worship God acceptably with reverence and in awe for our God is a consuming fire. Scripture says that the worship that's acceptable is when we worship God and we go, oh. And yet, how often do we have a sense of open-mouthed God is in this place when we worship? And if we don't experience that, then what's the problem? I mean, is, is God awe-inspiring? Is God awesome? Or is he not? Last week, uh, Professor Don Gell read Isaiah chapter 40. And in that passage, it talks about that, that God holds the waters of the world in the hollow of one hand. All all the Bay of Fundy, all the Atlantic, all the Pacific, all the Indian Ocean, all the waters of the world, God goes like that and he can hold it in the cup of one hand. And so I'm kind of a tactile person. I, I thought, well, I'm going to see how much water I can hold. And so I honestly did this. I, I went and got a, a, a cup and put some water in it and I took a spoon and I dipped it in and I put it into my hand and guess what? The water leaked. One teaspoon. I couldn't even hold a teaspoon of water. And God holds all the waters of the world in the hollow of one hand. And in that same passage that Professor Don Gell read, it says that he stretches out his hand, singular, he stretches out his hand and touches side to side in the universe. Not just the Milky Way. We're the entire universe. God goes like that and can span the universe with one hand. And so I play the piano. I know exactly what the span of my hand is. From, from the tip of my thumb to the tip of my baby finger is exactly nine inches. I can't even span a sidewalk with the, with the span of my hand. And God goes like that and touches side to side in the universe. And then it says that he created all the stars with the word of his mouth and calls them all by name. That's the part that caught me. Billions and billions of stars in the universe. And he not only created them, but he can keep track of their names. Billions of, oh yeah, that's that, and that's, that, that's the name of that one. I've got three kids and I get their names mixed up. And God can keep track of billions of stars and another scripture says, like the, the islands of the world are like dust in his hand. Greenland, England, Australia, New Zealand, the, the Baffin Isle, they're, they're like little grains of sand in his hand. I mean, this God who holds the waters of the world in the hollow of his hand and touches side to side of the universe and can create billions of stars and keep them track of their names and holds the, the islands of the world like grains of sand. Is God awe-inspiring? And if he is, then what's our problem? We may say, well, nobody ever told me that when I worship, I'm supposed to worship with a sense of, 
Oh, but if we say that, then what we're really saying is that we don't read our Bible. Because the psalmist says, how awesome is the Lord our God, the great king over all kings. So we can't say that, that nobody's ever told us that we're supposed to, to worship God in a way that respects the awesomeness of who he is. Oh, I know. The reason that we don't have awe for God is that we're just so familiar with God. Helen's brother used to, used to live in Niagara Falls. And one time when we were up there visiting with him, we were driving up. There's a road that goes right up beside the falls. And we were on that road. And Helen and I, for some reason, were both in the back seat of the car. And Helen had her face like against the glass of the window. And, and, so, and I was over there too. Look, there's the falls. There's the falls. And Helen's brother, this is exactly what he, he's driving. He goes, oh yeah, there's the falls. I mean, he had driven by it so many times that to him it was, oh yeah, it's just the falls. And maybe we who are part of the evangelical community, maybe we're just so familiar with the sense of God that we just go, oh yeah, that's God. As far as I know, I'm at least fourth generation Christian. I know that my dad was a very godly man, my grandfather, the most godly man I've ever known. I know my great-grandfather. I've heard stories about him praying at church and the sense of God's presence there. I mean, pastor to church, you know, we had between 13, around 1,300 people that were part of our church in Ottawa. I mean, I've been at this thing a long time. I mean, you, you'd have to go a long ways to throw something at me about church life that, that I'm not familiar with. I mean, I can sing the hymns of the church with the best of you, you know, to God be the glory, great things he has done. So loved he the world that he gave us his son, who yielded his life an atonement for sin, and opened the life gate that all go in. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, let the earth hear his voice. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, let the people rejoice. Oh, come to the Father. You know, we're just so familiar with the things of God. And do you think God in heaven is going, yes. Just love the way you sang that song. I think not. Maybe the reason we don't have a sense of awe is maybe nobody's ever taught us that we're supposed to worship God with awe. Maybe, maybe it has something to do with that we're just so familiar with the things of God it's just become second place. Maybe the reason that we lack awe for God is that we so overemphasize our family relationship with God. You know, God is our father. Jesus is our brother. I'm so glad I'm part of the family of God. And we've pushed this analogy of our relationship with God about family, family, family so much that we forget, that's only one of the analogies that the Bible uses to describe our relationship with him. Like, he's also called the potter, which makes us what? A little piece of clay. And he's master, which makes me servant. And he's holy and majestic and eternal and everywhere present. I mean, there's so many ways to describe God. It's not just that he's my father in heaven. There's many other ways to describe our relationship with God. 
But maybe we just keep pushing this. Oh, yeah, he's my father, Abba Father. We can go to him and cuddle up on his lap. And we forget that he's also a consuming fire. Those may be true. Maybe the reason we lack awe for God is because nobody ever told us, or maybe we're just so familiar with the things of God, or maybe we just keep pushing this father image all the time. But I don't think that's the real reason why we lack awe for God. Allow me to go back and retell my two opening stories because I want to emphasize something again. When I got on the Maid of the Mist boat ride, remember I'm standing right at the bow? And do you remember what I said about Niagara Falls when I, said, when I first got on, on board the boat? Remember I said, oh yeah, there's the falls. Remember I said that? And remember when I was at the back of the room with Sandy Allen and I was leaning against the wall and when she stood up, I went, oh yeah, tall woman. Remember I said that? The sense of awe did not happen until the boat got really close to the falls. And the sense of awe for Sandy Allen didn't happen until I made that conscious choice to get up closer and then I sensed awe for her. And I'd like to suggest to you, perhaps, that the real reason that we don't have a sense of awe for God is that we're not nearly as close to God as we think we are. There is such a huge difference between knowing about God and experiencing God. Huge difference. Any one of us in this room can rattle off facts about God. He's holy. He's eternal. He's omnipresent. He's omnipotent. He's, he's eternal. He's merciful. He's love. We can, we can rattle off the stats about God. Most of you, or many of you know that I pastored in Ottawa. We had a number of the NHL players that came to our church. And uh, some of you know who I mean when I say the great one. And we're talking about Wayne Gretzky. And we could rattle off the stats about Wayne Gretzky. 61 NHL records, most career points, most career goals, most career assists, 40, 50, 60 goal seasons, 50 games with three or more goals in it, most points in one season, most goals in one season, 51 consecutive games with points, uh, four goals in one period. I mean, we can rattle off stats about Wayne Gretzky. I have, honest to goodness, I have over at the house, I've got a, a hockey stick that Wayne Gretzky used when he played in Edmonton. I can tell you about Wayne Gretzky, but if you, if you pressed me on this thing and you said, do you know Wayne Gretzky? I'd have to say, mm, no. I know about Wayne Gretzky, but I don't know him. Never met him, never shook his hand. We know about God, our stats and our theology, but that is so different than encountering the God of the universe where he is close, intimate, right there. And the question is, how do we get that? If he is so awe-inspiring and I lack so much awe for him, how do I get close to him? And, of course, the Scripture says, if you'll choose to draw nigh to God, he will draw nigh to you. The same way that I got close to Anger Falls, the same way that I got close to Sandy Allen, I made a very conscious decision. I made a decision. Go buy the ticket, 
put on the blue rain suit, go stand at the very bow of that boat. I made a very conscious decision. I want the best experience with Niagara Falls that I can. I made a very conscious decision to stop leaning against the wall and to make a very conscious decision to take the steps and to move close to Sandy Allen. How did I get that sense of awe? It was the intentionality. I'm going to experience this thing. How do we get close to God? It's the same way. It's the intentionality that says, whatever it takes for me to encounter this great God of the universe who is so awe-inspiring. If it means that I, I'm, I fast and pray, if it means I go for walks out in nature because the heavens declare the glories of God, if it means I get into solitude, if it means that I lay prostrate before God, somehow I have got to encounter this great God to experience the awe and the wonder of what God is actually like. Amen. I'm going to tell you a story, and some of you are going to think I'm the stupidest person in the world and I've got a really weird mind, and there's a lot of truth to that. Um, just before I came on staff here, we were pastoring in Buffalo, New York. And Helen and I said one day, let's take the kids and go back to Niagara Falls. This is like seven years ago. And so we did. We loaded up the kids, and we went to Niagara Falls, and, and we didn't go on the Maid of the Mist boat ride this particular time, but we did go to the railing that's right beside where the falls falls over, and you're standing there, you get that sense of, whoo, you feel like you want to dive in or something. And it's like, it's, it's really neat. But after we did that, then we said, let's go up to the tourist area. So you leave the falls and you cross a street and then there's this little hill. It's not very big. It's just a, a little hill and then it goes up to a flat area. And that's where all the touristy type stuff really is. And I don't know why this was true, but Helen and the kids were walking a little bit ahead of me. And I'm walking up the sidewalk, and just to the left of the sidewalk, there's this, this little grassy knoll thing. It's just this little patch of grass. It would be, you know, I don't know, like from, from me to Helen right now. It's just this patch of grass. And Helen and the kids are walking up the hill. And as I'm walking up the hill, I'm, I look down at this, the green grass, and I see something that is totally weird. Do, do you know what I mean when I say an artesian well, like water that kind of spurts out of the ground? You know what I mean by that? So I'm walking up, and I see coming out of the grass, I see this little spurt of water going like this. And I had this weird thought. I'm not kidding you. This is exactly what I thought. I thought, what if a tourist came to Niagara Falls from someplace in the world, you know, Japan or someplace like that, and they're in Niagara Falls, and they see this little spurt of water going like this, and they go, ooh. Niagara Falls. And they get out their camera and they take pictures of it. Click, 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 click. And then they go home to wherever home is. And they, their friends back home, you know, in China or Japan or something, they say, oh, where'd you go? Canada. Oh, what'd you see there? Oh, what's Niagara Falls? Did you see Niagara Falls? Yeah. What's it like? Let me show you pictures. Really? Yeah. Mm. Not very impressive. No. Not very impressive. I honestly thought that. You say, Steve, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. I say, I know. But what if they missed the falls and thought that that water falling down 
in the city of Niagara Falls was Niagara Falls. You say, it's stupid, I know. But what if a visitor came to your church and they walk in and we have our worship time and they go home afterwards and their friends say to them, was God there? Well, it's water, it's flowing, it's, something was there. It wasn't very impressive. I'm here to say that our lack of awe for God misrepresents who God really is. That's what I'm saying. We do a travesty to who God is when we worship him without a sense of, oh, he is holy, he's eternal, he's majestic, he is close, I sense the grandeur, the beauty, and the power, and the holiness of this great God of the universe. We do, number one, a grave disservice when we worship God with no sense of awe. The imminence of God is not there. Number two, awe enables right worship. That's what the scripture is saying. So let us worship God acceptably with reverence and in awe for our God is consuming fire. The clear implication is that when we worship God and there is no sense of awe, what's that make our worship? Not acceptable. That's pretty sobering. Let us worship God acceptably with reverence and in awe. Implication being, if I don't have reverence and awe, my worship is not acceptable. You mean that the hundreds of times that I've gone to church and I have done something towards God, sing a song, pray, read a creed, do something, and there is no sense of that my worship has not been acceptable to God? Awe enables right worship. And third of all, in the Old Testament it says that awe enables right living. I've thought about this long and hard. What is it, what is it that causes a teenage boy to choose not to do this over here that's wrong? What is it that enables a, a teen girl to choose, I'm not going to do what my friends are doing. I'm going to do something that's more God-honoring instead. What is it that, that prompts a person to say, I am not going to cheat on my income tax? What is it that, that inspires that? Now, I'd like to suggest to you, it's that sense of, there's an all-powerful God that someday I have to give an account to. And I'm going to choose not to do that out of reverence for God. 
I think it's the book of Zephaniah or Zechariah. I don't remember right now off the top of my head, but one of those, one of those in chapter 2 of one of those books, it says Israel has committed a great, two great sins against God. You say, what's the two great sins? The first sin, God says, you've turned your back on me. And I can see how God would be offended at that. After all that God had done for the Jewish people and the Jews turned their back on him, he said, that's a great sin. And then he said this, and your second sin is this, you have no awe of me. Our lack of awe misrepresents what God is like to a world that desperately needs to know what God is like. Our lack of awe means that we can't worship properly. And our lack of awe means that we don't live properly. The flip is the opposite. When I do worship God with a sense of awe, it tells the world what God is like. It enables me to worship Him properly, and it inspires me to live rightly. This month we're talking about living in Christ. And I was thinking about that and saying, where do we see this sense of oh, in Scripture and, and associated with the person of Christ? And my mind first went to the Mount of Transfiguration. And you remember the story, Peter, James, and John, they're up on the mountain, and all of a sudden, Jesus begins to just glow, and his face is brighter than the sun, and flashes of lightning, and the cloud descends, and the voice of God says, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And in Mark's account of that, it says that Peter, James, and John, they didn't even know what to say. I mean, they babbled out something about building a, a structure for, for Elijah and, 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 and Moses. But the scripture, they didn't even know what to say. <gasps> Jesus, in his great priestly prayer in John's gospel, says, Father, glorify me with the glory that I had before the world began. The Christmas story and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were absolutely terrified. The Greek word is something like, Pastor David, uh, it's not phobio, it is? Phobeto. The Greek word, it's a, it's a reverential fear and awe. <gasps> wow, that's what God is like. John the Revelator gets a picture in the Isle of Patmos of the glorified Jesus. And he falls on his face as if dead. And Jesus has to go to him and says, it's okay, you don't need to be afraid. We're in Christ. Even the way Jesus referred to the Father is so full of reverence and respect. In that great high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, he says, Father, Holy Father, Righteous Father, We're in Christ, that sense of awe for who Jesus is, who God the Father is, seeing him in all of his majesty. Would you bring up that scripture passage again, please? And so let us worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a cuddly fire. Now, our God is a consuming fire. I had never seen a forest fire until we lived in Kentucky. 
And one day we were traveling up this highway, and I looked over, and there was a forest fire that was going on, and the hills were just ablaze. I, I don't know how else to, it's just like lit up the entire area. And the flames and the heat was incredible. Let's stand, shall we? And let's read this verse together out loud, shall we, please? Let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and in awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Heavenly Father, as we bow before you, please accept our most heartfelt repentance and sorrow. For every time we've gone through the motions of worshiping you without the sense of reverence and awe for who you really are. As we're on this campus and living our lives, may there be sufficient time in our life where we choose to draw close to you and you so graciously reciprocate and choose to draw close to us. And we experience awe for you that communicates to the world what you're really like. It enables us to worship you properly and inspires us to walk rightly. And we'll thank you for what you do in us and through us. In Jesus' precious name and all God's people said.